If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There he is. In the flesh, mate. It's, <laughs> it's so good to see you face to face. Our first time chatting face to face after uh, all these months, my friend. It's fantastic to finally uh, get to do it this way, as opposed to uh, you know over the phone and waiting for the uh, uh, inevitable. You have one minute remaining. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and I'm mean, in actual my. This is my childhood room right here that I was in when I got, went to prison. You know, what I mean, so. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. And today is part one of the final part of the story of Evaristo Salas Jr. Convicted of murder at 16, a murder he always maintained he was innocent of. And finally, the courts agree. In November of 2022, I sat down at home and began, as I normally do, to scroll through a streaming service, this one being Stan, a streaming service here in Australia. I was checking out what true crime shows were on offer to watch that night, when I came across a show called Wrong Man, a show that was looking at the stories of three men who all claimed to be innocent of the crimes they'd been convicted of, and one of those men was named Evaristo Salas Jr. Our show, Wrong Man, details three people who claim to be innocent of the charges they are convicted of. Evaristo Salas was convicted of shooting Jose Ariola. On the Salas case, he said, you forced him to lie. You are kidding me. Yeah, he said, we set up Salas. There are just too many problems. The two-episode story of Evaristo Salas Jr. was truly gripping. My jaw was on the floor with the evidence that had been uncovered. It was astounding. Yet the show ended on a bombshell with no word on what had become of this man. So I instantly jumped online and started searching his name, expecting to see a story of his exoneration and how he had been freed for some time. But this was not the case. 
Instead, all I found was articles about how he was still fighting to get a new trial. By this stage, of course, one minute remaining was out in the world, and I knew I had to get in touch with Mr. Salas. So I jumped online and tracked down his sister, Debbie, sent her a message introducing myself and the show, and asked if she thought he would be willing to speak with me. If I can use you as a sort of go-between so we can work out a time and, and that sort of stuff, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's going to call me on Thanksgiving because that's when he... That, he always calls on Thanksgiving because he wants to hear everybody. Yeah, yeah sure. And kind of, you know, And I can, like, you know, just go to the side and say, hey, you know, this person wants to talk to you, you know, and kind of explain things to him. So on the 7th of December, 2022... Junior and I sat down to begin documenting his story. Well, my name is Evaristo Salas Jr. Uh, I was uh, convicted or wrongly convicted of first degree uh, premeditated murder when I was 15 years old. Uh, and I was sentenced to 32 years, nine months. How long have you currently been incarcerated for? I've been incarcerated for about 26 years and, and, and six months. Uh, and that would make you how old, sir? I'm going to be 42 on the 17th of December, so if you, in about a week, I'm, a week and a half, I'll be uh, 42. Little did I know, almost a year later, that man would be free and exonerated of the crime which had stolen 27 years of his life. On the 17th of August, 2023, after 27 years behind bars, Evaristo Salas Jr.'s nightmare ends in a matter of minutes, when a judge signs off on an order to have his conviction overturned and for him to be immediately released from custody. And a few weeks ago, Junior and I finally got the chance to sit down face-to-face and talk about how it all unfolded and how he's been adjusting to life back out in the free world. I mean, obviously, the last time we spoke prior to this hearing that was happening, this week-long hearing, we had a conversation and you said to me, look, the best we can hope for is that we go in there, they hear all the evidence, they go away, it goes then up the chain, these guys, they get you know all of the information from this judge and then these judges are going to look at it and, and say whether or not the ruling needs to be overturned. And the best we can hope for is that, that it gets overturned and then they say, new trial, uh, and then hopefully then the prosecution will just turn around and say, well, we're not going to go through a new trial. When we say vacate your conviction, that's not an exoneration, is it? Yeah, the vacating the conviction is, is not an exoneration, which is horrible too. So vacating my conviction would mean that they vacate the, the decision of the jury and it's pretty much the, the, the conviction is gone, and then they remand for a new trial. And so this is up to the prosecutor attorneys. I would have, that's why I so thought if they were to actually exonerate me, then I'd probably just be released. I don't think they can even do that. The court appeals can even do that. Right. I think the only option they have is to vacate the conviction and the remand for a new trial. And then all of a sudden, obviously, I get the call from his sister going, he's been exonerated. So I was, yeah, yeah. I was totally floored, like I'm sure everybody was. Hello? Hey, Debbie, it's Jack. How are you? Hey, hi. What's, what's, um, what's happening? So he's exonerated. No way! Yes, no, no way. I'm not lying. It, no, he's, he's, he's free. Debbie, and guess what? what else? And we're on our way to pick him up right now. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> I know. Phoebe, what the hell happened? I don't know. I, we walked in at 9 o'clock and at 9.02, the prosecutor oh was saying God, that. Oh, my God. Debbie, I'm going to cry. Announced that he was <laughs> I know. I think we already cried so much. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, let's talk about that that week, you know, because of going to that trial, because you were, you were doing it via video link. Um, talk, talk me through that first. I had the option of actually going to the county jail and having the hearing there, but I opted for being in the prison because to leave the, leave the prison would take away my opportunity of my job. I not, might not get it back if I come back to prison uh, or when I get back from the courts. And it just, and the cell that I was in too, or the room that I was in, uh, I could lose that in the process of going to the county jail. Not to mention the trip, not to mention the trip over there. So it was just a big hassle. So I opted to actually stay in the prison and do the Zoom because it was just simply more easier for me. Yeah. But that first day I went, it was uh, I had, had some anxiety, but I didn't. I just I just pictured it would be me kind of listening to the people that I, that I haven't seen for for a number of years, you know, two decades. They would just go back and and say what they've already said before, you know. They wouldn't kind of veer off any kind of way. Junior says as soon as he arrived in court via Zoom on day one, the actions of the judge gave him instant hope that finally he would get a fair trial. How did he know this? For the simplest of reasons that most of us would just think was common courtesy. She actually acknowledged him. What I noticed with the judge was right at this. The first thing I noticed with her is that she acknowledged me. She had a side portrait of her. So in order for her to look at me or the camera, she had the face this way. And so the first she first thing she did is when I went in there is acknowledge me, said me by name, first asked me if it was my idea or, or if I waived my right to actually be there for her. 
and have it over the Zoom, and which I said yes. And she made sure that, that it was my right to be there. But since I wanted to be in a Zoom, that she was okay with that. But that if I had any questions or anything at any time, wave her down and stop her. And that she'll go ahead and put us a recess so we can kind of figure it out. Not only that, but she asked me, well, how are you doing this morning? And, and just kind of, and which was, so the last judge I had didn't even, didn't even look in, the, in that direction. He didn't acknowledge me a single time. And so I think that right there, I, I got a good feeling from that because I think that when I seen that, I was like, okay, well, at least maybe I'm going to get a fair shot at this. Yeah, well, I mean, it speaks volumes. I mean, she's treating you as you should be treated, like a human being whose life is on the line mm -hmm. here. And this is about you. So I want to make sure that you know what's going on and we're acknowledging you that you're here. because, And that's what I find so many times that, you know, people who are on trial for things are basically told to sit down and shut up say nothing yeah. and everyone around them is t talking about them and their life and what's happening in their business and, and they, they get to say nothing or do nothing and then so many times i'm like it's just it seems so unfair that people's lives are on the line and they have to basically sit down and shut up whereas you know at least as you said this judge has turned to you and said if there's anything you're not sure about tell me we'll stop we'll make sure you understand blah blah which is fantastic that's brilliant it's great to hear yeah, and it was a, it was a big surprise for me, you know. And and so when I talked to my lawyer the day following that, the first Monday that we went, she she kind of said the same thing. She goes, I mean, she acknowledged you, which is a good good sign. She did it Monday, she did it on Tuesday, she did it on Wednesday, and then the last day she did the same thing. And so it was like every day she kind of acknowledged me. And the last judge or in the judges prior, they didn't have any kind of way of acknowledging it, you know. What I mean, so it was that in a sense kind of gave me a good feeling. I was thinking, okay, well. At the very least, she's going to give me a fair trial. And then the way she kind of, she didn't side either way. She was pretty objective of it. And she kind of, she was straight down the line with the law and the camera. And that also gave encouragement too. So I was like, okay, this is a good judge right here. You know? Yeah. So. When it came to Junior's hearing, it was all about witness testimony. Bringing back the key players involved in his conviction from the detectives, the victim's partner, who said she saw Junior at the crime scene, and of course the informant, who we now know says his testimony was completely false. Junior's biggest concern around this was that each one of these people, of course apart from the informant, would play the I don't remember card. And well, unfortunately, he was right, starting with the victim's partner at the time of the crime, Ophelia Gonzalez. That was her go-to. I can't recall, I don't remember. And yeah. some of it was real basic stuff, you know what I mean? So... And that's kind of typical of people that don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, because they don't want to slip that, themselves kind of, up. So they just go, I, I don't remember, as opposed to trying to work their way around it and remember the lies they told, potentially. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And obviously, she didn't want to be there, but she kind of, almost in every question, she just said, I, I don't recall. She said what she needed to say. She answered when the, you know, when the prosecutor, prosecutor came up and was kind of like, you know, giving her softball questions, she would answer those kind of questions. But as soon as my, my lawyer got up, she just, I don't recall. I don't remember. I don't recall. It was a long time ago. I'm assuming she was asked about the truck and having the truck cleaned yeah. and sold. Did she just say, was that one of the ones where she just goes, I don't remember? She pretty much just said what, like, the basic of, oh, I went to get the truck. It was at my house for, you know, and then she didn't say how long she, it was there. She said she couldn't remember. So she just kind of followed the basic. It was real vague in the way she kind of explained everything. And then when she was questioned on it, she just kept saying she didn't remember. Who gave you the truck? I don't remember. Who proved it? I don't remember. Why did you get the truck? I don't remember. So it was every single, almost every single question, because I don't recall, I don't remember. We it basically didn't get nothing, anything out of her, you know what I mean? So I figured, well, you know, that's, and that's, that's, that's the way yeah, it's all going to go. 
it's highly frustrating too because it's like what you've got nothing to work with then if they she just keeps going i don't remember then what you've got nothing to go with or nothing to work exactly. with. exactly it was pretty frustrating for me i mean when I, but i kind of assumed that with her i assumed that she was going to be stuck in whatever she was going to be stuck in and that she wasn't going to give nothing up because maybe she feared that it was going to come back on her or she just she didn't want to be there so she was going to as soon as she did that the first two or three times i knew that was going to be her strategy and that was probably going to be the strategy of the other witnesses up next was Detective Trevino. Now, if you watch The Wrong Man Show, you will see Detective Trevino being quizzed by an investigator, specifically regarding the release of the truck to Ophelia. Detective Trevino was the one in charge of the evidence in this case, but says on the show that at no stage did he or anyone else sign off on the release of that truck. Then they had the, the officer Trevino get up there and he kind of did the same thing almost. He answered what he needed to answer when it comes to the prosecutor's attorney, but when my lawyer asked kind of pressing questions, he went back to, I don't recall I don't remember. Or I don't recall. I was like, okay, this this is the way it's going to go. After that, through the first day or two, I was like, oh man, you know, maybe it's going to just, or the first day I was like, yes, yeah, it's probably what's going to be. You know, this is going to be just a hearing. They're just going to keep saying that. Then we're going to have to go to the Court of Appeals. So sadly, no major breakthroughs there. The next to get up would be Bill Braun, the man that would be brought in as the prosecution's informant, a man who said that Junior bragged about this killing. However, would later come forward to say that his testimony was completely false and that he had been given leniency on other charges as well as a payment for his testimony. The foreman got up there Wednesday and when he gave his statement, um, he was, uh, what made him more credible to me was that he, the way he spoke, he didn't, he didn't seem like it was rehearsed. He just kind of spoke the way he speaks, you know what I mean? And he spoke in those kind of terms. And it didn't seem like he was trying to highlight anything or trying to be, you know, grandiose in the way he explained things. He just said exactly what happened, how it happened. To me, it came off pretty as real genuine. You know? And I said, okay. And he was, you know, his voice kind of didn't change. It's just kind of like, this is what I did. This is why I did it. This is who told me to do it. And I feel guilty about it. Like he didn't practice this, you know, he just, he got up there and he answered the questions. And if he didn't understand something, he said he didn't understand it, but he answered everything the best he could, even when the prosecutor tried to press him on things. At the evidentiary hearing, Junior's original attorney from the trial back in 1996 would take the stand. Junior says this was pretty interesting to watch as he and the prosecuting attorney began to battle back and forth. So the prosecutor was essentially trying to tell him he was a crap attorney. The prosecutor's trying to feed him in it, but he already knows what he's doing, so they're going back and forth and battling it out. The prosecutor got real mad, you know, started, he started frustrating him. So he got real mad and to see him kind of, you know, kind of lose his composure and, and get angry and kind of just throw his hands up with them was, was, was a little entertaining if it wasn't such a serious thing. You know what I mean, but it was like my ex lawyer kind of just told him, look, you know, if I had these things, um, my argument would have been different. The prosecutor attorney was trying to make the argument that you were a terrible lawyer. And the reason why nothing got overturned was because you didn't ask for him, which is really not his job. You know, they're supposed to give you. Yeah, exactly. The so evidence. How, how, what's he going to ask for? If he doesn't know it's there, how does he ask for it? Yeah, and that's, that was a shoot back of the, 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 my, my, my prior attorney. He was like, I'm not required to ask. You're required to provide them for me. And I'm not required to just assume that you're hiding things. Yeah. And then I got to get a court order every time. That's not the way the law works. So they were just battling back and forth. And, uh, and I could see the judge, too, was kind of... Um, just her body language seemed like she was kind of annoyed by the prosecutor attorney because he seemed like it's a kind of a, a real soft argument to make that, hey, well, you didn't ask us for us. And then when you did ask us for us and we didn't provide it for you, you didn't press it. Yeah. And that's not the case. You know what I mean? So even the judge seemed like hey, I seen her shake her head a couple of times, like, you know, 
you're making a horrible argument. And, and I kind of know the law, you know, to that to that extent. And I was like, that's not really a good argument to make. Then would come time for the main event, so to speak. Detective Jim Rivard. He was the lead detective in this case against Evaristo Salas Jr. The man who Bill Braun, the informant, says made him lie. Told him that he was going to get Junior and made sure that he would. But there was a delay in him taking the stand. Detective Rivard was supposed to come on right after him. But for whatever reason, right at the last minute, he said, oh, he's not going to come, he'll be here tomorrow which kind of took my lawyers back because they expected him to be there. And it seemed like he was trying to prepare for what they said. Mm. So he can, so maybe the notes that were given to him, because it seemed like the next day when he came, he had everything kind of like he prepared himself really good. You can ready. tell. Yeah. And yeah. He was ready. You know, and the problem with that was that my lawyer had yet to reveal everything that she had. What was it like for you to see him after all these years? Cause you haven't seen him in, you know, decades. Oh, the thing is, too, with the Zoom call his, or the Zoom meeting, his, I couldn't really make out his because I had I had the big screen was dedicated to direct, or it was just a big picture of the judge. Then I had six, I think, smaller screens. One was the witness and the, the one was the lawyers on both sides and then, and then the, the, the courtroom. And then there was another one pointed towards somewhere else. So it was really small. So I couldn't really make out his face. Right. But just hearing his voice, that to me was a little bit tra- uh, traumatic. I mean, I, this is with the person that kind of just looked at me in the face and said, I don't really care what you say. You're mm-hmm. going to prison. Yeah. And so to see him, to hear him was kind of traumatic to me. Uh, but it was also kind of, I almost felt like we, we had accomplished something at that moment because here he was sitting on the stand being interrogated and it flipped on him. You know, prior yeah, he was looking lost at the power and it was now. Exactly. So there was a part of me that felt a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, of encouragement by seeing that, like, okay. We got here at the very least. All these years, you know, you've been trying to hide out or hide this lie. And now here you are in front of a judge being questioned under oath where you can't lie. And there's no outs. So you have to sit there and ask or whatever it is. To me, it was like I felt like we had accomplished something great at that moment. From the very beginning, Detective Rivard has always denied any wrongdoing in this case. He has always denied that he made Bill Braun lie. He has also always denied all allegations made against him, including that he paid Bill Braun for his testimony. And then Junior's lawyer gets up and hits him right between the eyes with evidence that he cannot deny. And so she hit him with every single thing from his beginning when he started as an officer and how he started kind of molding his informants and using these informants. And then she had paperwork showing where he was paying them, not only paying them, but also getting rid of charges and so she had that on paper. When she started revealing these things to him, I could see his body language. Like he knew, like, oh, what does she really know? You know what I mean? Because she kept pulling out more and more stuff. And some of this stuff dated back to prior to my case. And she knew it all and she questioned him. And and one part she he was uh trying to influence or did influence the one of the charges that Bill had back in Benton County. And he actually got it dismissed, but he tried to try to say he didn't. But she had on, on paper showing where he made the statements, had the emails and everything, and, or the memo memorandums back then. And I think that he was stunned by that. He was, I mean, how did he get that? And the way she got that was kind of a, a kind of a strange way she got it. She kind of it all kind of just landed in her lap when she was, you know, doing these public disclosures. Everything that she could find file public disclosure on, she did that was related to Rivard and his working with informants. And that's the way she came up on these on these statements. 
and pretty much had him in a box where he, he tried to deny it. But she basically proved in that little moment right there that he not only lied to get the informant off those charges, but knew that he was lying by his own statements. Cross the attorney tried to get up and try to stop it, those line of questions. But the judge was like, he's on cross-examine, so he's got to answer the question. She's pretty much on him about everything. She's not holding the punches back. She's, she's telling him, you, you did this. You set up Salas, you did that. And he kept saying, no, well, I did this or did that. And But she already had him in all these lies already. He was already caught like three or four times lying on the stand. And so he was already kind of, you can tell he was shaking. I was just thinking, I was just waiting for the moment that he was going to crack. You know, I was thinking he, he's going he's gonna to slip up somewhere. And the moment came where she's like, so you you paid, you paid the bill, didn't you? And first she said, no, I didn't pay him. Oh, you, you paid. And she kept going back to it. She just kept saying it in a different way. And finally, he just says, yeah, I paid him. I paid him $20. And in that moment right there, I think he thought in his mind that, oh, it's just $20. But that moment he revealed that he gave something to Bill over I said to myself, I was like, that's it, got him. What has happened is monumental in this case. Detective Rivard from day one has stated that he had never paid the informant. He said at the original trial in 1996 that he had never paid the informant. He's said it for the past 27 years and he again said it at the beginning of this evidentiary hearing. He was shown receipts of payments made and would state that those were from another case, not this one. And now he finally says, okay, yeah, I paid him, but it was only $20. Well, it doesn't matter whether it was $2, $20 or $20,000 because Detective Jim Rivard has now admitted to lying on the stand multiple times. He has committed perjury, a very serious offence for anyone, let alone a detective in a murder trial. Junior's attorney doesn't stop there. She wants to tie this off with a pretty little bow. So she approaches Jim Rivard with the receipts that had been presented to him at the start of his testimony. The receipts he said had nothing to do with this case. Then she goes back, goes to the receipts, and these receipts that we had, he just went like the first beginning of the, uh, uh, of the testimony. The prosecutor attorney went up there and kind of said, these wouldn't be a part of it, these are part of something else. This isn't a part of it. He went down the line of saying how all these, he ex- tried to explain them all the way that they're not a part of this, they're part of another case. Well, she went up there and said, are you talking about this receipt right here where it's $20, right? And he says, yeah, that one right there. And then she kind of explained, well, you were explaining for the first 20 or 30 minutes of you on the stand that this one, because of these markings right here, this 95 right here, that none of the rest of them would have been paid because that 95 was there. But now you're, you're saying that you did pay him and this one has a 95. And then he said, yes. And that was just pretty much the nail in the, in the coffin right there for him. The prosecutor attorney tried to stop the line of questioning. The judge shut him down and said, no, no, he's going to have to answer this. And then the prosecutor attorney tells the judge, look, I need a recess, this and that. The judge gets angry with him and says, I'm not going to drag this case out more than it has to be dragged out. We're going to have to finish this case right now because this stuff has to get to the court of appeals and they have to decide. They gave us a short deadline and I'm not going to keep on dragging this out. Well, she basically said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to your prosecutor attorney. You're going to explain to him what was revealed today. And then you're going to come back tomorrow and have an answer for me, aren't you? And he kind of just like put his head down. was like, yeah. And then she went ahead and allowed it to go recess for the next day. After that, he tells my, my lawyers, he's like, well, this was a game changer. There was also another moment during this trial that raised more than a few eyebrows when, again, the informant was on the stand. 
Now, let's not forget that ever since this informant has come out to say his testimony was a lie, the prosecution have painted him as a liar, a criminal that can't be trusted. Of course, apart from his original statement, he couldn't lie straight in bed, this guy. So they question him on another one of his claims regarding Jim Rivard and his supposed draw of drugs. And, well, that backfires tremendously. The informant has said, too, that that Rivard kept large amount of uh, drugs in his drawer, right? So the, the prosecutor attorneys try to hit the informant, like saying, so you're telling me that Rivard just gives you drugs whenever you want? He's like, yeah. He goes, well, where does he have them at? He has them in his drawer. And he goes, so you're telling me that Rivard just keeps large amount of cocaine, heroin, or whatever it is in his drawer? He's like, yeah. So the next day when prosecutor went to question Rivard, he goes, so where do you keep this dope at that you were giving to these informants because they come at any time at night? He goes, oh, I keep it in my drawer on my desk. So that just right there confirmed it. And I don't think the pro- I could see the, the facial reaction on the prosecutor's attorney. Like he's like, he didn't want him to say that. He didn't think he was going <laughs> to say that. And he was like, well, he tried to kind of like, oh, do you keep it in a lock or this? He goes, oh, it just has one key. Who signs? Oh, I sign off on it. And that just made it even worse. And he just buried himself even more. And then he kind of just pulled back and stopped asking him questions on that. And so slowly he was almost confirming everything that the informant had said. So again, the informant's credibility is becoming stronger, while Jim Rivard's is being lost, dramatically. The hearing is adjourned for the day, with everyone set to come back tomorrow. When Junior arrives back at his dorm, he calls his attorneys. They're confident, but of course, don't want to celebrate too soon. Junior's attorneys tell him that they've received a call from the prosecution, letting them know there will be no need to prepare for closing arguments. Again, this is exciting news, but let's not celebrate just yet. Call us in the morning, they say, as Junior hangs up for a very sleepless night. So I get up and I'm just I'm just counting the minutes and when they want me to call. So they want me to call them that I think I have my hearing starts at nine, so they want me to call them at eight thirty. So I call eight thirty and I call Shaver and I can hear it in her voice right away. Her tone in her voice said it all, just told me everything. And right there I started smiling. I said, when she says they're gonna dismiss the charges against you. They're going to, or they're going to vacate your conviction, dismiss the charges against you, and order immediate release. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, it's over. After 27 years of fighting to clear his name, Evaristo Salas Jr. is told he is to be a free man. In the judge's closing remarks to Junior, she reflects on how long it's been since he was free. And she references a moment that actually happened during the trial that made her realise just how long it has been. So there was this little incident where uh, my old lawyer got up on the stand. He had his phone sitting right there. He says my name, Junior Salas, right? And then somehow series series activated and says, Junior Salas did not commit the murder. And then it went so on and so on about the thing. He goes, oh, and he tried to stop it. And then everybody in the courtroom started laughing. You know, the judge looks at me and says, um, "She starts laughing too." But I start to kind of laugh too because I heard what it said. And he's trying to—he's fumbling around and he keeps saying he didn't commit the crime, do the wrong man, and this and that. So it goes on and on about about me, right? It's kind of like doing a bio on me or yeah, something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's uh, a Google search on you—it's just repeating that you're an innocent man. I love it. <laughs> and so my ex lawyer or my prior lawyer, he goes, even Google knows that he didn't do it. He says something like that remark, and that's when everybody started laughing, right? 
And uh, I started laughing too. And uh, the judge looks at me and goes, she goes, you know, Salas, it's, I, I'm, I'm sorry about what's going on here. I know this is serious and everything. And, um, and I don't mean to laugh or nothing like that. And I go, I go, no, it's all right, your honor. Uh, I mean, I don't know much about series, but you know, I kind of get, I kind of get what, it, what what's going on with it. And, and so she brought that back up. She said, um, when you said that, I realized how long you had been in prison. You've actually never held a cell phone and all that kind of stuff. And she goes, so it might be kind of a little rough to adjust, but uh, I think you'll be all right. And she goes, I'm gonna order your immediate release. And I was like, that was it. But of course, that wasn't quite it as Junior heads back to prison, believing that it will be a few weeks for the paperwork to be filed and for the system to do its thing. Little did he know, it would be just a matter of hours before he would be on the outside of those walls, a truly free man. And so we had thought that it was going to take maybe a week to process the paperwork and all that stuff. So I was like, well, yeah, probably next week or something. Not even two hours later, they come down with the big old things like pack your stuff up, you're out of here. And I'm like... Next time on One Minute Remaining... One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of ESA. One Minute Remaining.